1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. Here's what God's Word says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask Him to teach us this morning from His word. Father God, thank You that You are not a distant God. That this morning, right now, as we gather, You are with us. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins, to walk in our shoes and in our skin, to feel the anxieties and the pressures and the burdens of this life, and to ultimately bear the burden of the weight of our sin on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you sent him to die in our place, that by believing in him we may have life and have it abundantly and eternally. And so, God, as we come this morning to your word, we just ask for even more of your help. Lord, that you would help us, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate the union between... Oh, sorry, I just thought maybe this must have been a wedding because we just read 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, and all of us have inherited at least one time at a wedding. Am I right? It is so familiar to us, and it's so associated with wedding ceremonies. We just assume that must be what it's talking about is weddings and husbands and wives and the love that they share together. But much to our surprise this morning, the context of this passage has nothing to do with a wedding. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to weddings or marriages or the love between a husband and a wife. Surely it does. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is not marriage. It's actually the church. Most of us do not have that association with this passage. To take it even further, it's not just about the church. It's about spiritual gifts among the church and how we use them. I'd venture to guess that almost none of us have that main association. But when you're reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, you find the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, sandwiched between the two largest discussions of spiritual gifts in the Bible. And Paul is not just all of a sudden randomly changing the subject. To say, well, I know I'm talking about spiritual gifts, but let me pause for a second because I've been meaning to talk to you about love in marriage. No, he knows what he's doing. He's not going down a rabbit trail. He's not changing the subject. He's framing the subject for us. You see, the Corinthian church had a problem. 
they had drawn all kinds of conclusions about spiritual giftings. And when we say spiritual giftings, what we're talking about biblically is this idea that when someone becomes a Christian, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus forgives you of your sins and then gives you his presence to dwell with you forever. The Bible calls that person the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life, does not come empty-handed. He brings with himself gifts. We call them spiritual gifts, and the purpose of them is not just only for you, though they will benefit you. It is to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. But the Corinthians had drawn all kinds of wrong conclusions about these spiritual gifts. Some of them were using these gifts to compete with one another, to say, well, I have these and you only have those. And they were using the gifts to elevate themselves above one another, to say, well, these gifts are more valuable than those gifts, so the people that have these gifts are more spiritual. And the people that have these gifts are less spiritual. Or maybe they've gone even even further to say, the people that have these gifts are more loved by God. They're more mature in their faith. They're more valuable to the body. And it's created a massive problem. I'm sure that there were some even among them that wanted to shut down the whole operation of all of these gifts and just say, get them out of here. It's causing nothing but chaos. And because of all of these misunderstandings, they weren't loving each other. And it was a mess. They had the right tools, but they were using them the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. And when you have the right tools, but you use them the wrong way and for the wrong reasons, there's absolute chaos and danger. One of the phrases we often use with our kids as they're growing up and as they are learning how to properly use their words and their bodies, we will often come to them and grab their hands after they have maybe hit one another or thrown something, and we will ask them, why did God make these hands? Did he make these hands to hurt others and harm them and be mean and cruel? No, the the correct answer that they have learned by now is God's made these hands to love, to care for people. You see, we can have the right tools, but use them in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons. And it's not only bad, it's dangerous. If love does not control and shape how you view and use spiritual gifts, then your gift is worse than worthless. It's dangerous. You see, we struggle with what the Corinthians did many, many years ago. This is not an ancient problem. This is just a human problem. We don't feel much responsibility to love each other. And the sooner we can be honest about that, the better. Within the church, we don't feel a whole lot of responsibility to love each other. We have a fairly individualistic viewpoint. We think church is mostly about me going to get what I need. Church is mostly about me going somewhere where I feel like I get fed. We don't feel a whole lot of responsibility to show up, invest, and love one another. but the Bible's pretty passionate about that. We are called to pursue loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is writing specifically to a local church to tell them you are called by God to pursue love. 
And when we say pursue love, I'm not just telling you to love your spouse. I'm telling you to pursue loving your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you gather with and share meals with and sit next to and share coffee with and all of those things. You are to pursue loving them. Why? Because God loves you. Maybe the most simple biblical idea ever. God loves you, but it has massive implications. Because God loves you, Christians, you are to pursue loving one another. Look at where he goes here at the beginning of chapter 13. Again, right in the middle of talking about spiritual gifts, he shows us this. We are to pursue love first because it is the most excellent way. Right? That's what he says. If you look right above chapter 13, verse 31 from chapter 12, earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you still a more excellent way. What is the excellent way? I'm so glad you asked verse 1 of chapter 13. Look at what he says. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, we are going to talk more about the gift of speaking in tongues in the next chapter, in chapter 14. But Paul is saying something here. We don't we might not know exactly what he's saying. He, he could be saying that speaking in tongues is sometimes a heavenly language. He could be saying that when he talks about speaking in tongues of angels. Certainly, we know that angels don't just speak English. We see them speaking throughout the Bible at different points. In different points, it's fair to assume that an angel is speaking in Aramaic or it's speaking in Greek. We know that angels can speak different languages. It wouldn't be all that far-fetched to think that there is some kind of heavenly language that angels speak and angels know. Maybe Paul is saying that speaking in tongues is sometimes a heavenly language and sometimes it's tongues of men. We'll get more onto that later. I know that some of us are like, talk about that, please. I want to, let's talk about that more. We will, I promise. We'll get there next chapter. But Paul would go on to say that he himself speaks in tongues more than anyone else in this Corinthian church. So maybe he's just explaining what that is, or he could be using hyperbolic language to give the most exaggerated example possible to say, if I speak in tongues even of angels, but I don't have love, not my speech is just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, I am just an annoyance. If someone was in gathering today with just a gong and they were just over and over and over again, we would all get very annoyed. I bet you half the room would leave. He says, when I practice even an incredible gift, like speaking in tongues, but I don't have any love, that's what I'm like. That's what I am. I am just simply that among the body. But he continues. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have the faith to move mountains... Now, if, if someone has any of those things, that's unbelievably valuable and powerful for us to have the kind of faith that Jesus talks about that says, this mountain go from here to here and it happens. I don't know about you, that sounds really beneficial. Or to have the prophetic knowledge from God where God reveals information to you, to where you understand all mysteries, you, have, you understand all knowledge, that would be unbelievably valuable. But he says, even if I have those things, but I don't have love, I am nothing. 
if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, if I have extreme self-sacrifice, if I love the Lord so much that I give my life, lay my life down as a martyr, but I don't have love, I didn't actually ever gain anything. Paul's essentially giving us a new math lesson where he says five minus one is zero. Even if I had all five of these unbelievably miraculous and powerful manifestations of the Spirit of God, but I don't have love, the sum total is zero. I have nothing. Five minus one is zero. You're welcome. (laughs) New math for us this morning. Paul wants to talk about love in the midst of this conversation about spiritual gifts. But we have to know this. He's not turning the page to love to say, well, love is the most important spiritual gift. Love actually is not a spiritual gift. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not a gift of the Spirit. He's not turning to love to say, this is the most valuable gift. And he's not turning to love to depreciate all the other gifts that he's already talked about and is going to talk about. He's not trying to depreciate any of those things. What he's trying to say is love is the way of life for the Christian. Love is the most excellent way. Love is the road that we walk together as we pursue and exercise spiritual gifts. He's framing the gifts in their proper context. I remember the first time I bought a really nice photograph for my office. This is when I had an office. Now I don't have an office. My office is my garage. This photo is up in my garage now. It doesn't quite go with the decor of a garage, but it's up. But I remember buying an expensive photograph. I loved it. It was, it was beautiful. It was this picture of Yosemite. It's a picture of Half Dome, and it's just gorgeous. It just reminds me of adventure and the Lord's creation and His beauty and all these things, and I love it. But when I had the frame, I had, or I, I'm sorry, I had the picture. I had to get a frame. Because to just have a picture that's, you know, large and rolled up is kind of pointless. I needed to get a frame. And let me tell you, I didn't realize the world of picture frames that exists. This is a, an entire universe, okay? There are picture frames you can buy on Amazon. And then there are stores you can go to to buy picture frames. So I went to one of those stores and I was shocked by the sticker price of frames, but I picked out a nice frame that would go well with my photo and complement it. And I got it framed and I took it home and I put it up on the wall. And then even though I had a frame, I realized it wasn't even framed properly. There was like waves in the photo. And I'm like, this isn't good. Like this is not done properly. So I take it back to the store and they redo it for me. And finally, now I have a proper frame and I have the picture properly framed. And now I get to enjoy the intention of the photo. What Paul is doing here for us with spiritual gifts is to give us the proper framework to view them and use them. Love is to be the packaging around all of it. And in fact, I think we can say this. The abuse of spiritual gifts, whether it is chaos of using all of the gifts with no guardrails and no order and no unity, or it's utterly neglecting a bunch of the gifts and just saying, get them out of here, we don't need them. Either one of those abuses 
at the root of them is a failure to love one another. So if you have experienced some of that in your past, at the root of that is because love was not framing all of it. Some will abuse the spiritual gifts to spotlight themselves and to control other people, and at the root of that, they're not loving you. Some will deny and neglect and say, we won't want any of that anymore. We don't even need it out of fear of being uncomfortable or being weird or, or, or for some other reason. And at the heart of that, Paul's even getting at this, is that when you don't have that, you're missing love. An opportunity to use these gifts to build someone else up in love. The way the Lord intended us to. Love is the point of spiritual gifts. The point of spiritual gifts is not to prove your superiority or your spirituality, but it is for you to love God's people. It doesn't matter how many gifts of the Spirit that you think that you have if there's no fruit of the Spirit. Paul's saying, if I have all of these impressive gifts, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It doesn't matter how gifted you think that you are. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't matter. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the first one, he says, is love. Now, those things are not against one another, gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit, but they've never been meant to be separated. So the question is, do we actually love each other? Well, let's find out what love looks like, shall we? First he says, pursue love because it's the most excellent way. And then these next few verses, he shows us what love looks like. And I think he's essentially showing us this. Love is the embodiment of God. Pursue love because first it's the most excellent way, but second, because love is the embodiment of God. Look at where he goes. Those next several verses, the ones that we maybe have heard several times in our life, whether we're a Christian or not. He lists about 15 different demonstrations of love. Paul does not just give a definition of love. He gives us a demonstration of what it looks like. But as humans, we think that we know what love is, right? All of us, maybe at some point in our lives when we were in our early youth days, we would say, oh, I am in love with so-and-so for my third grade class. And someone who loved you told you, you don't know what love is. And you didn't. And guess what? We still don't really know what it is. Even as adults, we like to think that as humans, we intrinsically know what love is. We like to think that we have this like rock solid antenna that can rightfully discern anything that we see and say, that's love and that's not love. And we're never wrong. That's what we think. We think that we are, we have that capability internally. We need no help from the outside. We just have this internal compass that knows This is loving and this is not loving. But friends, if you are a Christian this morning, you cannot have that worldview. That is inaccurate and it's false and it's unbiblical. You don't know what love is. I don't know what love is. We actually need to be shown what it is. And thank the Lord that he has shown us. In 1 John, the disciple who really understood love, he was probably the best friend of Jesus, 1 John chapter 4 says this. 
Beloved. Gosh, we could talk about that word for a long time. Beloved, you, those of you that are loved by God, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because why? God is love. If, oh, quick pause. If God is love, He's the one who has the authority to tell us what love is. When it says God is love, we don't get to import our understanding and definition of love to say God is whatever I think love is. If God is love, he has the authority to tell us what it is. And he has. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We need to be shown what love is. And so these 15 or so demonstrations of love that Paul lists are simply the embodiment of who God is. Let's look at them. He says love is patient. Right? When we say patient, sometimes we just think that all, all that is is just, just waiting. Like you just wait around and don't do anything. You're just patient. Well, no, not, not exactly. When he says love is patient, he probably means this, is that when you have love, you endure injuries without retaliating. You endure injuries without retaliating. You bear with those who don't love you. Which is exactly how Jesus loves us. Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus was silent before his killers. And that even when he was hanging on the cross, he said to the very ones that were inflicting injury upon him, what does he say? Father, punish them? He had every right to say that, but he said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's quick to pay back with kindness. It is affectionately caring towards others. It speaks words of affirmation and not condemnation, which is exactly what Jesus does all throughout his earthly ministry and even now in his heavenly ministry. That's why Jesus says to the woman that's caught in adultery, look around, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you, meaning I forgive you. So go and sin no more. That's a word of love and affirmation. That's why he says to Peter, after Peter denied knowing him three times, he says to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Those are words of affirmation when he could have come down and said, Peter, I can't believe what you did. And even now for those that are in Christ, Romans 8 tells us this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because love is kind. It doesn't mean that our sin wasn't a problem, but God is able to extend loving kindness to us because Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. He hung on the cross and received the wrath of God for our sins. He satisfied justice on our behalf so that now we can receive mercy. So love is kind. Love does not envy and it does not boast. Can we turn the air on, by the way? It is toasty. Love does not envy or boast. Right? If envy is coveting what someone else has, 
And if we frame this in the context of spiritual gifts, it starts to make a lot of sense. Some of us might envy the gifts that other people have, and some of us might boast of the gifts that we have and others don't. Love doesn't do that. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. You see, when we love someone, we are prepared to give up even the things that we have the right to hold on to. We can be so obsessed with, well, I deserve this. This is mine. This is, this is my right. But love does not insist on its own way, even when you have the right to hold on to something. For is that not exactly how Christ has loved us? Romans chapter 15 says this of Jesus. It tells us, let, us please, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Romans tells us to please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus did not insist on his own way. He did not insist on holding on to what he deservedly had. He, he, he laid aside his, his heavenly worship on his throne. He stepped off of that to come and rescue sinners. And he says, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Meaning the punishment that those people deserved for hating you, God, fell on me. Because love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, he says. Uh-oh. Love is not irritable. Meaning if I have love, I'm not easily angered. And I'm not easily annoyed. You see, there are some who are just waiting for the slightest offense or the slightest criticism. And then all of a sudden, all of this anger, this insecurity, this frustration, this annoyance just comes pouring out because you're irritable. Love is not irritable. It's interesting, though, because the person, the person that tends to do that, the person that tends to be extremely sensitive, just waiting for the slightest offense, that person tends to self-pity and respond by saying, you don't love me. Look at the words you're saying to me. You're offending me. You're not loving me. But Paul is saying, the person that is doing that, that's being overly sensitive, Paul's saying to you, no, you aren't loving. You aren't loving the other person because you're far too easily irritated. That might be a paradigm shift for some of us. When I have love and I'm actually loving my neighbor, I won't be easily irritated by them. Think about the things that offended Jesus. Well, first of all, think about the things that Jesus could have been offended by. That's an endless list. He is perfect. He created everything. He knows how everything is supposed to work. He's never sinned. He knows everything about everyone. He could have been irritated and offended by everything. And yet, the things we see Jesus offended by, we see, when we see it come out of him, it's things like 
barring worship of God. Saying you're only allowed to worship God if you're of this ethnic group or if you have this amount of money. He hates it when religious leaders heap burdens on people to say, if you want God to love you and bless you, you must do these things. He hates hypocrisy. And those were the things that irritated Jesus. But in response to those, he dies for those sins. Which means ultimately he's not irritated by them. He's come to rescue those who are enslaved to those things. Love is not easily irritated. Love is not resentful. Uh Uh-oh. So here's a scenario where you're not just being irritated by somebody that maybe didn't do anything wrong. Maybe they just said something insensitive. Here he imagines the scenario where you've actually been wronged. Someone has actually wronged you and sinned against you, and he says, love is not resentful towards that person. Which means when you are actually wronged, and you're a follower of Jesus who has love, you don't grow bitter. You don't hold grudges. That is not who you are. You forgive even when you don't want to. You forgive. You see, bitterness is a cultural value right now. We need to recognize that. The air we breathe culturally right now, bitterness is a cultural value. It is considered wise and strong to keep a file on people. Right? There's this common phrase that goes around, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. The idea of that is when someone shows you their character, they wrong you, they offend you, they hurt you, they sin against you, remember it. Believe that's who they are and keep a file and a record on them so you never experience it again. So you stand superior to them forever. Keep a file, keep a record of wrongs. That's a cultural value. We're being told to do that all the time. And Christians, we've gotten really good at keeping that under the surface. We know we're not supposed to be resentful, so we present this really joyous exterior where we can greet people with kindness, we can interact with them, but the moment they're gone, the bitterness grows. The resent grows. That's not who we are. We don't have a God who keeps a record of our wrongs. We're told in the book of Colossians that Jesus took our record of sins and nailed it to the cross and said it is finished, meaning it's paid in full. It's been covered. There is no record anymore. For those who believe in Jesus, by faith, you have been forgiven of all of your sins and gifted Christ's righteousness, which means if someone were to come to Jesus and say, what's the file look like for so-and-so that's a believer? and he pulled it out, it would be glorious. It wouldn't be this list of wrongs and, 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 and ways that we've sinned against God and he's just holding it against us, waiting for the day to pour out his wrath on us. No, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, your record of wrongs has been covered by the blood of Jesus. You now have the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, how could we ever keep a record of wrongs against anyone? How could we? Is that how we want the Lord to treat us? No. Love is not resentful. Love is forgiving. Because it recognizes we've been forgiven much. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That's an interesting phrase. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Sometimes we can enjoy endless discussions and grumblings about what is wrong with the world. Sometimes as Christians, we get in this space, we start talking to each other, and we just love to endlessly discuss and ramble on and ramble on about how wicked and awful everyone else is. And sometimes it's not just non-Christians, it's our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we love to do it about our churches. And we love to get together with the people that we know agree with us and grumble and complain about all of the ways that this church and that church and my church and your church are failing at all the things they should be doing. And you tell yourself, well, I'm not rejoicing at their wrongdoing. I just, I'm just really passionate about people obeying the Lord. I just have to keep calling them out for their sin. But in reality, you enjoy their wrongdoing because it gives you something to feel superior about. In reality, you enjoy being able to constantly critique others because it makes you feel better about yourself. Paul says love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings. No, what does it do? Love rejoices with the truth which means at the, at the slightest report of good, love is quick to celebrate, quick to bless, quick to love. Love bears all things and endures all things, meaning when you love, you can take a hit and stay put. You can keep going. Because that's the way God loves us. He says love believes all things. That doesn't mean that if you are loving, you are gullible. And everything anyone says, you just say, that's true, that's true, that's true. No, that doesn't mean that you're gullible, but it does mean this, that you are generous and accepting rather than cynical and suspicious. You give others the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes as Christians, we've gotten so ingrained in just thinking, well... Because of sinful nature, I'm just, I'm just skeptical and cynical of everything and everyone all the time. The sinful nature is real, but love believes all things. It means when we love one another and they do something that maybe is confusing to us, we tend to be generous and accepting and giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than just assuming and being cynical and suspicious. And love hopes all things heard this definition of hope that I love, this idea of courageously waiting. Love courageously waits, looking and hoping for the best. 
in the way that you would maybe look over a horizon, waiting for a loved one to come over the horizon, waiting for them to, to be here and arrive. Maybe you've waited at an airport and you've watched people kind of make that roundabout around the corner at LAX and you're waiting for them to see them and you just, want to re- you just can't wait to rejoice. Love does that with one another in our lives. We are hoping for the best in one another, courageously waiting, anticipating. This is what love is. Now, let me be crystal clear. The only one who loves like this is Jesus. The only one. The only one. We're told in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hating God, wronging God, opposing God, cursing God, ignoring God, when we were in that place, he came and loved us. He came and traded places with us. Not simply to say, that stuff doesn't matter. Love just overlooks all those things. No, he came to die for your rebellion against him. To pay what was owed for your rebellion against him. That's love. That's love. It's meant to absolutely rock us to realize, I didn't deserve any of that. Why would anyone do that for me? It's meant to bring us to that place to recognize there's no one like Jesus. There's no one that loves like him. There's no one that cares for me like him. There's no one else that would do that for someone like me. And when we come to that place and we turn to Christ and we trust in him. Here's what else becomes true. The only ones who can love like this is Jesus's people. The only one who does love like this is Jesus. And the only ones who can love like this is Jesus's people. First John again, chapter four, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And friends, that verse is not simply a description. That verse is a transformative power to say we couldn't love until he loved us. So the reason why we love, the the ability that we have to love is because he first loved us. We not only needed to be intellectually shown what love is, we needed to actually be loved by God. We needed to be transformed by Him so that now we could love like Him. So when we look at this embodiment of God, what this picture of love actually looks like, we have to ask, well, how do we elicit this kind of love? How does this come out of us? How, How do we actually get there? How can I love someone like this? And most of our approaches to loving each other tend to either be this. One, I just need to try really hard to love you. Gosh, you're irritable sometimes, but I just got to bear down and do it because God says. Or some of us embody uh, much of what like someone young and in love, right? Of like, wow, 
When someone's falling in love, what are they essentially saying? That person is so amazing that they are just drawing love out of me. They are so lovable, I can't help but love them. And ultimately, this person is dependent on that person being lovely in order for them to love. And so what happens to this person is they get exhausted. They're extremely self-reliant, and they don't actually love. They're just trying hard. And this person eventually gets exhausted too because that person eventually is no longer lovely because they start doing things that are offensive or they're not as beautiful as they used to be or I don't enjoy them as much as I used to. They are not as lovely as they once were and so therefore I've lost all my power to love them. We need a different source of power to love one another. Let us look to the way that the Lord loves. Here's how the Lord loves us. God loves what is unlovely. Every Christian who is loved by God, it is not because God looked at you and said, wow, what an incredibly lovely human. So full of goodness and kindness and perfection. I cannot help myself. No, all of us are unlovely. All of us are haters of God, enemies of God. God loves what is unlovely, which means God's love is entirely self-originating. It needs no outside help. It, is just, it just comes from Him. It's just who He is. It's entirely self-originating. This is how we as Christians learn to love each other. Our love for one another is not entirely self-originating, but when you turn in faith to Christ... God so transforms our hearts that love now comes from it. Because the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, is with you in your inner being. And His love is entirely self-originating, and He lives in you. So now, because we've been so transformed inwardly, we don't need an outside source to grab onto and say, help me love you. We have God Himself within us producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We now have a love that is originating from God and He's in us. And the more you follow Christ, the more you learn to love like that. Not because they're lovely, not because you have such a strong will, but because God loves you and He's in you. Which means if I'm ever lacking, if I'm ever struggling, it's because I need to remember who He is, how He loves me, and that He's in me. There's somebody here that's hard for you to love. There's somebody here you're tempted to be bitter towards or judgmental towards. There's somebody here that irritates you. And if there's not, just wait a few minutes. No, but like frankly, if there's not, it's probably because you're not in close relationship with people. There's somebody here that bothers you. There's somebody here that irritates you. There's somebody here that's wronged you that you're tempted to be bitter towards. If you feel wounded and weak and trampled, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus knows what it's like to be absolutely wronged since the beginning of human history. Every single day by billions and billions of people. And yet he went to the cross 
to rescue you from your sins. Jesus knows. He can help. Pursue love. Lastly, for this reason, it's the eternal marker of God's people. This is where he goes in the next few verses, which we're actually going to spend a lot more time on the next time we're in 1 Corinthians, um, in, in two weeks after Vashik's here. Um, but he starts talking about all these spiritual gifts and essentially saying, they're all going to pass away. But you know what doesn't pass away? Love. Love never ends. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. The gifts, the spiritual gifts of God can be replicated to some degree even by Satan. They can be replicated in some degree. Different languages, works of miracles, different gifts. They can be replicated to a certain degree, but you know what cannot be replicated by Satan? Real love. This kind of love, the embodiment of God, that cannot be replicated by the enemy. It is the most genuine marker of the Spirit of God among us is that we actually love each other. Because there will be a day when these gifts pass away. Right now, they are, a, they are a gracious and wonderful gift, but they are temporary and incomplete. One day, we will see Jesus face to face and have everything that we need, and we no longer need these gifts, but you know what we still have? Love. So, while we wait for that day, let us use these gifts to do just that, to love, to love each other. Because we could also look at what Paul argues and says, even if I have all these gifts, this, 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 and this, but I have not love, I'm nothing. But what if, what if we have all those gifts and love? I think the Lord wants us to imagine a church like that. What if we have all of these wonderful gifts of the Spirit of God meant to build each other up and, and we love each other like this? Whoa. Imagine how built up we could be. Even from things that seem so simple and small, when they're done in love, are transformative. I remember being in a really difficult season of my life where I felt like I, the Lord was calling me into something really, really difficult. And I was sensitive to the fact that there were a small group of people in my life that thought that it was prideful. And I, I was asking the Lord to search my heart, like, Lord, tell me, am I struggling with pride here? Like, is something, am I not seeing something? And I remember meeting with another pastor, very seasoned pastor, probably in his 60s or so, explaining to him what, what had been going on in my life, and I remember him just simply saying very simple words and, and very matter-of-fact. just said, oh, Nick, you're not, you're not prideful. You're just being obedient. And those words were so simple, but it just, like, released. Those words just, like, brought my walls down, and I felt like the Lord was just affirming me through just a simple encouragement. Like from someone that I don't even know super well, but like is listening to this story and, and just encourages me with something. And I was so built up by that. Friends, that, that's what we get to do to one another in our church, using our gifts in love to build one another up. We may not ever see just how transformative it is, but I promise you there's a day coming when like a hundred years into heaven, and we finally have the time to sit down on a park bench with each other 
and fully see the ways in which our gifts done in love to each other build each other up. It is transformative because the Spirit of God is doing it. God wants us to be a church like that, a church that loves each other the way He loves us. He wants you to love His church the way He loves His church because it's the marker of God's people. You remember the story of Jesus at the Last Supper before He goes to the cross, and He enters into a dinner with His disciples. And He shows up, and no one wants to wash feet, right? This awkward moment, everyone looking around, who's going to wash each other's feet? It's not me, I'm better than you, it should probably be you. And Jesus gets up from the table and wraps a towel around his waist and starts going around to every one of his disciples and washing their feet, taking the form of a lowly servant. Remember, he even washes the feet of Judas, the one who's about to betray him because he loves. And what does he say when he's done? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how we are to love each other because this is how God loves us. This is why we are to pursue love. John got it, the disciple John. He was in that room. He would later write in 1 John 4 again. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We've come to believe that he actually loves us. The love he displays on the cross, we've come to know it and believe it. And because of that, we can love each other. Some of you might be here this morning and you have not come to the place of knowing and believing the love that God has for you. And today needs to be the day where you finally come to your knees and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to love me like that. I need you to be the one that has gone to the cross for my sins. And today can be a day of salvation for you. You don't have to sit in sin and rebellion against God forever. Today can be a day where you turn to Christ and believe that he died on the cross for your sins and be rescued. Simply by calling out to him in faith, you can believe. And for those of you that have already been a Christian, maybe for a long time, today is again a day where you can come to know and believe the love that God has for you. And it becomes the power for you to love each other. Let's pray together.